Hello and welcome back to season eight of the Great Women Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel, and I couldn't be more excited to be kicking off this series with an interview with one of the most trailblazing artists alive today, Tracy Emin. But just before we get to the interview, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House. Did you know that 48% of living artists whose works were offered in the June 20th and 21st century evening sale at Christie's were female? To continue this fantastic track record, their evening sale this autumn season, which will take place on 13th of October, will be headlined by a deeply personal painting by Tracy Emin. This is alongside masterpieces by David Hockney, Gerard Richter and Francis Bacon. On that same day, Christie's will welcome the Cena Gina collection, the largest collection of contemporary art from Africa and its diaspora to come to market, bringing together artists including Lynette Yadamboeche, William Kentridge, Ellen Atsui, just to name a few. You will be able to view these works and many more in person at their King Street Galleries in London from the 6th to the 13th of October. Entry is free and open to all. Christie's Freeze Week programme doesn't stop there, with more auctions showcasing post-war and contemporary art and photography, as well as their long-standing partnership with 154 Contemporary African Art Fair in celebration of the fair's 10-year anniversary. You can get the latest updates by visiting christies.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most trailblazing artists ever to live, Tracy Emin. An oeuvre that encompasses painting, textiles, sculpture, neons, film, installations and more, Tracy Emin's work is some of the most frank, personal, confessional and visceral to ever exist. She speaks universal truths on a personal level, drawing on love, desire, loss and grief. Whether it be her 18.2 tonne or 9 metre high bronze, the mother, as recently installed outside the Munch Museum in Oslo, or an intimate watercolour drawing, Emin's works hold so much power. They are alive with energy and have the ability to send us to places that resonate, that make us feel, that are somehow incredibly familiar, but make us question so much. Just as she has said, true art should resonate. It should make you feel. It's not a picture. It's not a thing. It's not an object. It is a true thing that has energy. That's what makes it art. Born and raised in Margate, where the artist resides today and where she has just been named a free woman, Emin studied at Maidstone Art College, followed by the Royal College of Art. It was in the 1990s that she came to the fore, with a shop she ran with fellow artist Sarah Lucas in 1993 and her hugely significant biographical works, from Everyone I Have Ever Slept With, 
1963 to 1995 to my bed, works that changed the course of art history and are just as contemporary and relevant today. In 2007, she represented Britain at the Venice Biennale, and in 2008, she had her first major retrospective at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art. She is in the most prestigious museum collections across the globe. In recent years, she has installed a poignant nian in St Pancras Station, I Want My Time With You, taken painting to new heights with her incredibly strong and emotive works, as recently exhibited at her joint exhibition with Edvard Munch at the Royal Academy of Arts, and her current exhibition at Jupiter Artland in Scotland. Following a severe illness in 2020, she has, in her words, made her most honest and complete work to date, as witnessed in her incredible show earlier this year, A Journey to Death at Carl Friedman Gallery in Margate. Tracy Emin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, you did say I could correct you on some things. So I actually wasn't born in Margate. I'm born in Croydon. I was born in Croydon. Of course. Yeah, at Mayday Hospital, which I always think is kind of cool. It's Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. But I grew up in Margate. I was raised in Margate. You know, my mum lived in Margate until she died six years ago. So Margate is home, essentially home. So I cannot tell you what an honour it is to have you on the podcast. I grew up with your work and it never fails to teach me about myself the more I visit it and the more I get older. The power of it is its ability to interact with any person on this planet at any one time, whether it be your bronzers with their battered surfaces where you can feel the imprint of your hand, your paintings that radiate emotion, expression and a compulsion to make and live or your neons. Each of them feels so raw and truthful. And I feel like when I look at your work, it can apply to any relationship I've ever had, whether it be with myself, my life, anything. So I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are making work? Well, everything's changed for me since I've been ill. When I was younger, it was just like a sort of gut reaction to everything. It was just like throwing everything out of me, not considering anything, just being really emotional and cathartic and not really thinking about anything and then in the middle bit it was all a little bit too much thought maybe and too considered and I didn't paint I stopped painting and now I think on the last stage of my life I've got it right and I think when I'm working now I don't really think I just work and it's more like a sort of true expression of my whole self And that's what painting can do. And the same with the sculpture, because I'm just playing with clay with my hands, whatever. But I think now I'm becoming more and more honest, more and more free and more and more understanding about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Yeah. I mean, with the paintings, what's amazing is that you feel your whole body in it. Even if it is just this two-dimensional surface, you can feel the outline of your body. I mean, what does painting give you? What sort of sensation does it give you when you're in front of the canvas? Um, Well... Recently, when I've been painting, I've been doing these really, really big paintings. And it was amazing. I was sweeping my arm around to paint the bottom of the canvas. And I realised that I was doing it in this amazing sort of circular action. And I thought, fucking hell, it feels like I've never been ill. It feels like I never had cancer. It feels like this is me. I feel like me. And every bit of pain I've ever had in my life has just gone. That's what it felt like, which is pretty amazing feeling. This sort of sense of invincibility or something. Yeah, and it's because when you're doing the right thing, you feel good. When you're doing the wrong thing, you feel bad. 
Totally. And do you think about how the viewer interacts or feels in front of your canvases? Yes and no. It's like I'm not doing it for the viewer. I'm doing it for me. And I'm doing it for if I emanate the truth and, and get out of it what I need and what I want, there's a very good, strong possibility that someone else will feel something. So when I was very young, I was 22, and it was the first time I went to the Tate Gallery ever, a lot of people find that kind of hard to imagine that I was 22, but there's some people that have never been to the Tate Gallery. You go to the Tate Gallery if, when you're a kid or when you're young, if your parents are interested in art or culture or trendy or sophisticated or educated. But if you're not like that, it's going to be hard to even find out where the Tate is, you know. Mm. So I was 22 by the time I went, and I stood in front of a Rothko painting for the first time ever. Didn't even know who Rothko was, nothing. It was this pink and yellow painting. And I just broke down and cried because I could feel what was resonating from that painting. I didn't know about Rothko. I didn't even like abstract painting. You know, I was into really sort of total expressionist work. And this painting, I felt it. I could feel it. And I think that if people can stand in front of my work and feel something, then I'm doing the right thing. If they feel nothing, if they think it's a picture, if they think it's just something beautiful, or if they think it's a work of art to hang on the wall, which is worth some money, then I failed miserably. It has to translate more than that. It has to be about a feeling. And now as I'm getting older and my life is so radically different from how it was from when I was younger. I can absorb myself more into what I'm doing and understand it more. And it's for me to kind of understand my life and untangle things. And I think a lot of people need that. They need to untangle themselves. And if my work helps them do that, then it's a good thing. And it's like, I'm sure you're going to bring this up, but a lot of my subject matters over my life that I've made work about, people have been really dismissive towards and thought I was being narcissistic or selfish or it's all about me, but I wasn't. <laughs> As time goes by, that becomes more and more evident that it wasn't about me. I was using me. I was the model for myself of the experience that people go through. Like 1900, 1910, Dego or someone or Picasso or Matisse would paint a beautiful woman and they would paint what they're looking at and what they're feeling, the beauty of this woman, for example. I am making work about the tragedy of this woman, the feelings this woman has, the heartbreak this woman has, the displacement that this woman has, the loneliness that this woman has, or the isolation for a certain situation, whether it be abortion, being misunderstood, being at the end of some sort of misogynistic crap or something. I'm making work about that. The reason why people didn't pick up on it or didn't want to pick up on it, as we know, is because a good 80% of people in the art world that run the art world are men. And they're going to not like what I'm saying they're not going to take what I'm saying and even if it's subconsciously they're not going to so I think now my time has come in a way because no one's going to be arguing about what I'm talking about politics for example people don't think my work's political well let me go and show a body of abortion work in Texas and let's see how political it is 
And by the way, everybody, usually what happens in America usually happens here later. For we know we could go for a massive wave of conservatism, and I mean that in the religious political sense. I don't mean it in what you vote. I mean in how you live and how you behave. If you think about the Victorians, you know they ne- you know wouldn't show an ankle, and then you've got the 1920s when people have got their skirts above their knees and they're dancing with their legs wide open. Things happen and things change throughout history. And as women, we will be the brunt of that and we will be the example of that and we will be the proof of that. So if we are going through a stage of mega conservatism, it's women that are going to be at a massive disadvantage in every way possible. That's part of what I make my work about. And if it's unpalatable, then I'm sorry, but I'm not going to stop making work, am I? I think what I get, especially even just having been a young girl and then now a woman, from your work is this idea of truthfulness and actually also preparation in what's happening in life as well. And I was re-watching your film, How It Feels from 1996 the other day and how much that resonated now and how honest and truthful that work is. And the power of great art is to speak to anyone at any one time. I want to ask, have you always felt it in you that you have this incredible tendency to tell the truth or speak truth because it's so... No, I don't know about truth. We all see a different truth. We all feel a different truth. I'm not talking about the truth. I'm talking about how I honestly feel. And I could honestly feel different tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. Or someone could change my mind. But there are some things which are sort of pretty primal. And as a woman, being abused or being treated like a piece of shit or not having the right to choose what you do and what you don't do with your body, it should never happen. It's probably the first time in history that this has happened. So I think we're living in really scary times. And my work must reflect that in some way. It has to. And this is why there's a lot of artists' work that I look at throughout history. Amazing artists, fantastic painters, really beautiful paintings. But I think, for Christ's sake, you live through two Second World Wars (laughs) and there isn't even a mention of it in your diary. Wow. You know, woke up today, looked out the window. The sea was an aquamarine blue. I felt something move within me. Yeah, I'll tell you what moved in you. Like another 2,000 Jewish people who've just been picked up and taken to a concentration camp from just down the road. You know, no mention of stuff. And I think there's this sort of thing now that as an artist, you've got to be vocal and you've got to have an opinion because if you don't, you're just making pictures you're making decoration you're not representing what is happening and how the world is feeling and I think that's really important so I've never changed from that I've always just made work about how a woman feels and it may not be a big thing may not be seen as an important thing but as time goes on and we see the atrocities that are happening and the decisions that are being made within the world it is important When was it that you realised the sort of potential or power of art? I mean, was it a life experience or was it an artwork that you saw? Now, well, I told you about the Rothko, right? Yeah. So the Rothko painting was pretty incredible because after I went back to college, went to the library and looked up Rothko and nearly fell off my chair when I realised he'd committed suicide. I thought, fucking hell, like, 
Wow. And being someone who's really emotional and highly strong, and when I was younger, I was like, not crazy exactly, but definitely wild in every way. When I read that about Rothko, I just thought, wow, that's why I related to it. I feel like he does. I understand how he feels. I got the feeling in that painting. So... Because previously to that, I was really always only looking at expressionism, really. And the pain was in the image or the picture or the mark or whatever. And then after the Rothko experience, how many people can say they had a Rothko experience? It's pretty good. After the Rothko experience, <laughs> I realized I realized that art actually transcends time completely. And I understood that as an artist, what you touch with your hand and what you do you can feel it, it lasts, it resonates. And it's a bit like psychometry. It's a bit like anything from ghosts to apparitions to different things. Things get trapped in time in space. So if you think about how emotional Rothko was, how he must have been so emotional and how extremely conservative he was in so many ways and how he controlled himself. And then he goes and commits suicide. It's pretty intense. I could feel that looking at the pink and yellow painting. So I would like people to feel things when they look at my work. And it doesn't have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to be awfully painful. But it has to have feeling in it. A rawness. Yeah. Because it comes from the artist's hands and there's this, there's something about the magic of that that can be passed down. And also this redemptive quality of art as well. Yeah, and I think that's why I stopped sewing. And that's why I stopped doing a lot of things. And, you know, I love writing. So I could make a lot more films, for example, because I write within the film. Or you can have these evocative moments of these visions of things, whether it's cloud or whether it's the sea or whatever. But you can then have the script and the emotion that goes with all of that. But I just feel so good just for drawing, painting and sculpture. It's like I completely returned back to my roots and literally roots back to Margate. <laughs> And I just feel like I've got this time that's been given to me. After I had cancer, I kept thinking I was going to die, thinking, oh, my God, every three months I have to go and have a test done. And every three months I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to find out it's come back. I can find out I'm dying. I'm going to find out this or that. But I'd keep it all inside me. And now the complete opposites happen. Now I'm going... Wow, so I've got like maybe 30 years to get this sorted out. You know, wow, I've been given this extra time. Wow, I should have died and I didn't. And now I've got time to sort all this out. And it's like being born again or something. It's incredible. So with the painting and with the drawing and with everything, I feel like I've got all the time in the world to do what I have to do. But I haven't got much time to do all the other things that I have to do. And now that's become a major thing with me getting organized with my legacy with my foundation with everything and I'm quite young to start up a foundation but with you know this fear of nearly dying I realize I've got to be ahead of it yeah and it's like why not enjoy my foundation why not enjoy my legacy while I'm still living definitely yeah got everything I need and what I really love is property and art so you know with all the things I'm doing in Margate with the studios with the artist residences and the archives all of that it all really makes sense now it's like you spend all your life being an artist that's all I've ever done I've never done anything else so everybody from the outside looks at you thinking that you're doing the right thing 
So the art isn't just about me being an artist and making art. It's about the whole idea of living art, making places for artists to make art, seeing art being made, being part of that whole process, looking at much younger generations making art and helping and facilitate all that can only be a good thing. It's like, I don't want to jet. I don't want loads of clothes. I don't, I've got enough, I've got enough rings. I've got this, I've got that. So I've got to be putting all this energy and all this life that I have somewhere into something. I don't want to just like come back as a ghost, as a poltergeist, smashing everything up because everything's in the wrong place. And, uh, and who better to do it than you as yeah, well? exactly, yeah. It's perfect. Mm. So you were born in Croydon in 1963. You were raised in Margate, where we are here today. And I love this idea that you were half British, half Turkish, and also half a twin. I mean, I'm fascinated. What drew you to making when you were younger? Were you always interested in making? Me and my twin brother, we had a lot of problems at school. And we weren't very academic. And by the time I got to secondary school, I was actually really bright, but I just hated school for lots of reasons. And I stopped going. Me and my brother, we both stopped going. I stopped when I was 13. And then when I was 14, about a year and a half later, by law, I had to go back to school. Otherwise, my mum would be in trouble with the social services. And the only subjects I really did was PE, art and drama. And my school had a really, really good art department. And I ended up doing more or less three days a week art. So I loved it. And then I didn't have any O-levels or A-levels, so I couldn't go to art school. But oh, by the time I was 20, it's a long story, I actually managed to get into Maidstone and get on a degree. And I loved it. I worked so hard because it was the only actual education education that I'd ever had that I really, really wanted. So by the time I was 20 and got onto my degree... I had learned very little academically or whatever. My brain was just like a completely big open space. And all it wanted was art. That's all I wanted. So I had a massive advantage over lots of other people because other people had been crammed up with A-levels and this and that. And I hadn't gone through that route. I just knew I wanted to be an artist. And the interesting thing is I've done nothing else but that ever. And... I got very, very slagged off because of apparently all the other things I did in the 90s. But I've never done another job. Everything I've done has been art. And I didn't care how broke I got. I didn't care how poor I was as long as I felt like an artist. So between 1980 and 1982, you were at Medway College of Design. I mean, what were you doing here? What was that like? <laughs> well, I'd gone for an interview at Medway for foundation course, and I got in. And then when I left, they said to me, can you leave your certificates with the secretary? And I didn't have any certificates. And I'd lied on the forms. I'd said that I had O-levels and A-levels, but I didn't. So I couldn't do a foundation course. And I told them the truth. I said I lied. And then they said... Who made what you're wearing? And I said, I did. And they said, do you make all your own clothes? And I said, yes. I said, in fact, I've got a basket with me. And in the basket was all these clothes that I'd made. For two years, I did fashion, but not like a degree or anything. It was a BTEC course. Mm. And I did two years doing pattern cutting, sewing, seamstressing, all that kind of thing. I was really good at sewing, but I was really bad at fashion. And then there was, luckily, there was a train strike and I couldn't get from Margate to Medway for about six weeks. And I got a pair of glasses 
started drawing and never looked back, literally. And then when I went back to Medway, I said, I don't want to do fashion. And then I heard Joe Strummer talking about John Cass School of Art and how you could do a foundation course there. And you just had to turn up with your portfolio and you paid a pound a year. And so I went to Sir John Cass School of Art with my portfolio, got in on their foundation course. It was two days a week and I did printmaking one day a week. And then I swapped over. I did the printmaking two days a week. And then I got into Maidstone from my portfolio from that. I found this amazing poster that you made at Maidstone for your Tracy Emin 1986 degree show. Hmm. And it was so fascinating because in a way it reminds me of the expressionist there is so much kind of rawness but also I mean it speaks to so much of your work today but it was so fascinating to seeing you know you making a poster in the 1980s or something I mean let's see (laughs) (laughs) it's this that oh my god yeah (laughs) and tracy.traci yeah yeah it's because I wanted to be different But it almost looks like something like out of the Expressionist or something. It's taken from like um, the Expressionist woodcuts. Yeah. You know, it's really nice though. It's actually a really nice poster. My God. I must <laughs> have really printed cool. them up and just pinned them everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. so cool. Mm. But I mean, when was it then that you discovered Expressionists and how did they I make know, you I discovered feel? the Expressionists when I was really young because of David Bowie. I loved David Bowie and I had this boyfriend who said to me, oh, you know that album cover you know like Heroes and Lodger it's taken from Egon Sheila so then I went up the road to Albion Books the only bookshop in Margate and found a book on Expressionist and there was Egon Sheila tiny little image of his work and next to it was Monk that was it I just found my friends and that was brilliant because at school we were taught about Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol you had to do two living artists and it's amazing living Roy Lichtenstein and Andy Warhol was yeah and then suddenly I was opened up to all this amazing expressionism in Margate yeah and I thought that's me that's me. I'm that kind of artist. I'm expressive. I express myself. It's all, you know, screaming, you know, it's all <laughs> angst. It's all, yeah, whatever. And all throughout my time at Maidstone College of Art, it was all very neo-expressionist work. It was just completely blinkered, actually, until I went to the Royal College of Art. And then Royal College of Art did painting. And that's a massive leap to go from printmaking to painting. There's quite a few people that go from painting to printmaking, Mm. but not the other way around. And to get into the Royal College of Art to do painting then in 1987, and very few people got into Royal College of Art that didn't either have a tutor that taught them that was already working there or were not from a London college. So I did really well, actually, just to get in. Yeah, I mean, I read that you um, submitted seven sketchbooks, even the criteria was four. (laughs) I love that determination. Yeah, they told me I was one of the only people that actually had full sketchbooks. (laughs) And they said they had never seen such terrible paintings. No! (laughs) (laughs) And And it's because I was painting with screen ink. I didn't have any money for paint or oil paint. I was painting with screen ink, so I didn't know how to paint. And when I had my interview, they said, why did I want to go there? And I said, because I want, I want to learn to paint. Mm. I mean, what better reason? Yeah. And I did. So I had a very difficult time there. 
really difficult time. I did feel like a fish out of water. It was really hard for me. I never fitted in. One amazing thing, though, I did get a lot of scholarships and travel grants and travel scholarships. But I had a brilliant time because I worked all summer holidays. I worked 10 o'clock every night. I worked every weekend because I had a lot of catching up to do because I couldn't paint. And Ken Kiff was my tutor. Alan Miller taught me how to stretch the canvases and how to prime them and everything. And then Ken Kiff came in and tutored me. And it was, I mean, fantastic. I leaped ahead. And I remember when I did my first big oil painting, I finished, and I remember him coming in and saying, you've done it, you've done it, you've done it. So even though I found it really difficult, I was really nurtured and helped. And that's why I can paint. Mm. Mm. And I can draw because I spent seven years learning to draw. Went to every life drawing class I could. So academically, I can draw quite well. Yeah. But I mean, the work that you made here is extraordinary. I mean, there's this painting called Friendship from 1989 that I just found was one of the most moving paintings. Or I'm probably showing you all these blasts from the past. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But I just, there was something so expressive in it. Even the chair had no, this but personality. That, that, that's quite interesting, that painting, because... There was another painting that was of both my grandmothers and it was my mum's mum and my dad's mum. So I did this painting of these two women coming together in history and I loved this painting. I loved it so much. And because I'd got all these scholarships and bursaries and everything, the college chose a painting that they keep and they chose that painting. And then that painting was put upstairs in the racks or whatever for posterity. And what I did was I, Stan, who was the doorman, I went into his office, I stole the keys, I went upstairs to the storage and I swapped this painting over with (gasps) that one, the friendship one. And the friendship one I wrote on the back, I'm not ready to give away my grandmother's on the back of the painting and I said I'm sorry but I want to keep this painting knowing that the Royal College of Art collections would never look at my painting I wasn't of no importance you know I was going to be one of these people that probably disappeared you know and I never saw any more of it until years later I went to the senior common room and my painting was hanging up instead of people liking it there was a hell of a lot of dislike towards it. And the what? people on my table were saying things like, oh, my God, I shouldn't have to look at that painting. And I was thinking, oh, my God, it's my painting. And I was thinking, that is revenge, right? Yeah. Because had it have been the grandmother painting, I would have said, hey, that's my grandmother's there and this painting really means it. But because it was that one, I just didn't know what to say. And actually, if you see it in real line, there's even a sort of faint crack all the way down the canvas. Because I was going to throw this painting away and I dug it out the bin and then stretched it on the stretcher so it would be the same size as that painting. Mm. Mm. So it's naughty of me. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happens when you do bad things because now the only painting that exists from that time is the painting I didn't like and one that somebody bought. That's it. And so what happened to the painting of your grandmother's? I threw all my paintings in a skip. I threw them away. Why? Because I couldn't look after them. Because I had no studio, I had no money. I was pregnant, didn't know what to do, so I threw everything away. Wow. Mm. And how did it 
feel to paint again when you were able to? It took me a long time because after I was pregnant and I had this abortion that went wrong, I was all fucked up mentally, morally, physically, emotionally. I just didn't know what had gone on. And I punished myself by not painting because I was convinced that had I been a successful artist, I could have had the baby. All I kept thinking about was throwing myself off of Waterloo Bridge with the baby. So this was the reason why I had an abortion. And also the other reason why I had an abortion was because the boyfriend at the time didn't want me to have a baby. So I felt pretty vulnerable. I was so broke. I was homeless, in debt. I just left the Royal College of Art. And to me, I'd worked so hard at my education and coming from my background as well. And I knew I wanted to be an artist. And I knew that if I had a baby on my own, I felt that I had zero chance of that happening. So it seemed like ironic that now, after all my education and fighting and doing all this thing, that I was going to end up being a single mother on my own, completely broke, totally demoralised. And I just thought, I can't bring a baby into the world with all this and alone. It was the perfect textbook case for having an abortion, you know, and I knew that however I felt, I was doing the right thing. And I still know that I always did the right thing, even though I've never had children or whatever. And look at the artist that I am. And if people see the film, how it feels, it makes a lot of sense what I'm saying, how it goes full circle. So How It Feels is a film from 1996 that you made a few years after you actually had the abortion. And it's this incredibly powerful and emotional film of you outside where you got the abortion and how a man basically denied you the right of having this abortion. He actually patted my stomach. When I told him that I was pregnant, we were in Regent's Park and he patted me on the tummy and said, hello, we're going to kill you. So that never really made me feel good about having a baby with someone that could say that to me. I was devastated. I've always been really generous and open to everybody in society, always, regardless of class, colour, creed, whatever. And I had started to realise really uh, quite painfully that some things in life were a lot easier if you come from a different background or if you come from money or if you had a support system there of love, say, and, and unity and maybe a big family to look after you. And if you were actually alone, like I was, there was no way I could go ahead with having a baby. It was tormenting. I couldn't do it. I wanted empathy. I wanted someone to understand how I felt. And this is why I made the film, you know, how it feels. All these people are talking about women's rights. But unless you've actually really been in that situation, the most incredible, difficult thing, You only have a small amount of time to decide what you're going to do. So physically, you may feel one thing. Mentally, you feel another. Your heart might feel another. But you have to make a decision. And I made a blanket, equal, meekle, squeakles. And it's the A to V of abortion. And it tells you how to get an abortion, what to do. And this blanket just sort of like got whisked up into history somewhere and just disappeared. You know, I know where it is, but you'll never see it hanging up in a museum anywhere. When, of course, that's exactly what should be hung up in a museum at the moment. So people can go into the museum, go, right, this is what I do. This is what I have to do. I don't go, oh, now in America, you can't have an abortion in so many states. I'm going to make some topical work about this because I believe that it's wrong. I know it's wrong. I lived it, and I know what it was like to make that choice. 
and I know what it's like to live through that. You can see that in my work. When I make work about that subject, it's not a fake idea or a fake notion. It's not just a political statement. It's a heartfelt, rendered, gutfelt, heartbreaking decision that I had to make. My work isn't about, like, I have a bad experience and then I go and make some work about it. It's a lot more thought about and a lot more felt and it's about how things resonate and for people to relate to and how they feel. Because I know with how it feels, it really affects people when they see the film. And for some people, it's been quite useful as well. I mean, it's it's a political tool. It's an educational tool as well mm. and shows the world what it's actually like. But I mean, that rawness, I guess, spans throughout your work, whether it is being in love or this idea of the bed or death or anything. I mean, it's about this raw emotion that you have. Yeah, at the moment, I've got a show coming up. I'm making work based around the idea of the lover's grave. And I made two of the big images at Carl's show with that with a lover's grave and the lover's grave is kind of like a real contradiction because it's like I saw you know like um it was this paleolithic graves when they find two people curled up together that's so sort of kind of strangely beautiful but my idea is like a lover's grave is like you die together you know you're buried together you love together you live together but also the other thing about the lover's grave is like love has been buried. It's like the end of love. It's like love has turned into dust and dirt. Love no longer exists. So I want to make work about that because that's what I think about a lot. And recently I did this very big painting of two lovers laying down on a bed. Then it become a grave. Then he disappeared and now it's just her. And she's curled up in this sort of like fetal but really sexual fetal position which is like a sort of a paradox but it's red and it's bloody and it's white it's kind of quite alarming to look at and it's just got this very flat pale grey background that's like the shape of a cave and I like it it's quite graphic actually I don't like doing graphic work but sometimes you just do because it's so clear what you're trying to say I always call them my cave woman drawings they're just like imprints in my mind that have always been there I love that idea. It's like even like the cave paintings and the fact that they were like those hands were actually by women. Yeah. Like the first form of painting mm. that we know of. Yeah. Someone asked me today if I was going to art school now or had to go to art school, university or whatever, would I go, you know? And I said, no, probably not because I could never afford it. But I would definitely be an artist. Nothing would ever stop me from being an artist. It's all I know. And also I realised that the art that I know is so primal and so driven from these sort of ancient things. I'm not trying to make contemporary art. This is the same thing that I would have been making a thousand years ago. Yeah, I love the idea of grave as well, like being in the ground and those figures almost being kind of taken by the soil or something, as if like also soil being something that almost transforms into paint with liquid. Yeah, exactly. But also it's like the idea of love, how love changes like the honeymoon, the next bit, the next bit, the next bit, the burial, yeah. the end, the death. So, but I don't want to, I don't want things to die. I want to resurrect things. But I guess with like the cycle of life as well, being that's all bound up in love as well. Yeah, well, I, I wrote a story a few years ago about uh, this woman, and it starts off with her brushing her hair in front of the mirror, and she's getting dressed, and she goes out, and she walks over these little mountains and over this glacier, and she watches them lift out her fiancé from, like, 70 years earlier. 
because he's fell down a glacier. And as they bring him up, he's still frozen, exactly the same, beautiful and everything. And I wrote this story about that, about how love can last. And that's kind of like a lover's grave. But she's literally buried alive in the living world. And then he's frozen in time and death. All of those things interest me. I think it's because my mum spent the last few years of her long time alone. And my mum said to me that she would watch people holding hands, old couples and things. This is when my mum was like 85 or whatever. And she said she'd look at them and she'd think, well, at least I don't have to go through that. What? <laughs> no. She said, imagine spending all your life with someone. Yeah. And then one of you dies. She said it must be so frightening and so scary and so so strange. And also, though, she did always wonder why she was alone. She questioned that as well. So that's kind of like a lover's grave. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think people definitely die of heartbreak. Yeah, well, lots of people do. They just can't live without the other person. Even if they hate them, they can't live without them. <laughs> But I love this idea of the kind of cycle of life and also like, having seen your exhibition recently at Jupiter Artland, so much of it was centred around the motif of the bed, which almost is evocative of the cycle of life. It's where we are born, it's where we rest, it's where we resurrect, it's then where we die as well. I mean, why are you drawn to the motif of the bed? I don't think that I'd be able to seriously make images of a bed or paintings of a bed or figures on a bed. I always thought it would be too corny and too strange after the bed, my bed, the real bed. It would seem like I was just plagiarising myself or something. But of course I'm not because it's like, yeah, 25 years later, you know, I'm still sleeping in a bed, I'm still making a bed, I'm still laying ill in a bed, I'm still living in a bed, I'm still fucking in a bed. The beds still exist, not as a motif, but as a stage of where we live our lives. So it still really matters to me. And what did the bed mean then, and what does it mean now to you? If you mean like the symbol of the bed or whatever, it meant the same as what it does now. You live, you die, you're born, you die, like everybody knows that. But my bed then meant something different to me because it was like this sort of strange thing that kept me alive. And the fact that I had the ability to see it in isolation away from the room in a white space, like in my head in the gallery, was a real shift of consciousness because... Most people would just want to clean it up. <laughs> what compelled you to put it in a museum? Because I understood that it was something universal. I understood that immediately. And I wasn't winging it. Like now people know that I definitely wasn't, you know? Yeah. It was real. I could have been painting it, I could have been drawing it, but instead I just went to point A, the primal thing of what I saw in front of me, and use that. It wasn't a ready-made. It wasn't a Duchampian idea. None of those things. I could have made a painting of it. It could have been in my head. But even now, when I'm in my bed in the morning, it still has those flavours, those similarities, those things, those nuances of that bed, because it was my bed. That's why it's called my bed. <laughs> but it also becomes my bed and everyone else's bed as well. It makes us think about our own relationships with our bed. Well, it also makes us think of our own mortality, doesn't it? You know, I've just been really ill the last couple of weeks. I had blood poisoning and been really, really unwell. I could have died. 
So that's made me rethink a lot of things at the moment as well and re-question everything and, you know, again, why are we here, what are we doing, what's it all for? And one thing I realised in the last two weeks is that I really want to clean up a lot of my life and release myself from a lot of the things which trap me, possessions and different things like that. I realise I have far too much. So it's quite funny with the bed, because the bed will exist forever. This time capsule, frozen in time, part of me, is quite strange, really. How do you feel when you see it now, reassembled in museums around the world? Well, last time I saw it was in Oslo, and I was with the Queen of Norway <gasps> looking at it. <laughs> How illustrious. And that was kind of quite, yeah, that was kind of quite strange, you know, talking about <laughs> the, all this dietess and everything that was around the bed, so yeah. it was quite interesting. So you imagine, when I got up out of that bed in 1998 and staggered out of the room and looked back, never in a million years did I think that I'd be standing <laughs> in the Edvard Munch Museum... <laughs> with the Queen of Oslo looking at that bed with all those things. So it's, you know, it goes to show, though, about life. You can be at rock bottom. You could be at your lowest ebb, but you must not give up. Because at that moment of the bed, I could have easily been dead. I could have been suicidal. It could have been the end of me. That bed could have represented the end of me. But instead, it represented the big beginning of my career, you know. So it's interesting how... Something can look one way and then it can look another way. It's just time that changes things. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the reaction to your work because, I mean, I've known you as this sort of matriarchal pioneering artist my whole life. But yet we've spoken about this idea that when you represented Britain at the 2007 Venice Biennale, the critics weren't as welcoming. I mean, I'm fascinated in this idea that actually you've paved the way for telling the truth and the truth of women's stories, which is why your work resonates across cultures, backgrounds, ages, everything. Also, one thing is I haven't gone away, have I? They tried to make me go away, but I didn't go away. <laughs> and it's like back to the Venice Biennale, you know, the subject matters we had, rape, abortion, abuse, sexual abuse, fear. Those were the main subjects that I was working with. I was put down and vilified and laughed at. You know, nobody bothered to spend the time looking to see what I was saying or what I was doing. With the European press, they did, but it was mainly the British press. And I think now they would look at things differently. I think a lot's been said by women over the last 20 years to make men look at what women are saying and what women are doing in a very, very different way. And can you talk a bit about what you actually did for the Venice Biennale? Because not only did you put work in, but you actually helped restore the building itself. Yeah, I did. I spent a lot of my budget restoring the building. The building was in a really bad way, from the roof to the floor to the windows. Marble had been painted over since 1955, and I decided to restore it all. And I didn't actually get thanked for that, so that was slightly upsetting. You know, I didn't have to renovate the pavilion. I could have just hung my work up. But I thought I was doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, it's left an incredible legacy. Mm. And in 2007, you were made a Royal Academician. How did that feel? It felt great, actually, at the time. This idea of all these men with beards <laughs> going, whoop, 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 you know, and then I saunter in. And at that time, there was only about a quarter were women, but it's really changed a lot. And I know the Royal, Royal Academy is an institution within itself. It changes really incredibly slowly. I was one of the first female professors 
ever in the history of the world, 200, nearly 250 years, along with Fiona Ray. And can you imagine that? 250 years, no female professors. So it has changed slightly. But, <laughs> They've um, got two. <laughs> yeah, but it was all different things as well. I was, I was given a CBE in 2012. I've had quite a few accolades in Trinity College, gave me their medal there, carried the Olympic torch. <laughs> now you're it. a free woman of Margate. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I've done it all. I've lived. I've really lived. Yeah, so for all of these things, carrying the Olympic torch, right, for example. Oh, my God, that's so cool. I know, but it should be like, well, that's really cool. But in, in terms of the art world and the art institution, the art establishment, they go, what's she doing that for? What? That's amazing. Now maybe it might be amazing, but then it wasn't so amazing. People in the art world don't think that it's cool to carry an Olympic torch. Who cares what the art establishment think? I mean, the fact that you just create what you, what you want to see. No, but you're wrong. I do care because I'm an artist. Of course I care. If I said I didn't care, I'd be lying. There's loads of things now I really don't give a fuck about. But back then, I cared. Like, it was part of my career and my life going forward. How to be successful. What do you do to be an artist? So you see that the successful way to be an artist is you the Turner Prize or the Venice Biennale or solo show at the Hayward Gallery or Tate Modern or whatever it is. And there's a trajectory that says this is successful. And that is all most artists know because that is the, the power of success. It's only when you really become totally myopic and self-focused and understand your own total journey do you realise that that is maybe successful, but somebody else's success. And it's taken me a long time to understand that about myself. I'm not like an ordinary artist. There is such a thing, an ordinary artist. There isn't. But I don't feel that I'm fitting into the average category of what successful is. I'm no longer part of that world at all. And especially after being so ill, and especially after rediscovering Margate again, there's lots of things that I did care about that I really don't care about anymore. All I care about is my work and making art like exist and keeping it where it should be, in my mind, at the top of my life, the most important thing. Yeah. The idea of time within your work is so important. One of my favourite works ever is when I go on the Eurostar and it's called I Want My Time With You from 2018. And it's amazing. You've had this neon, this huge neon that has all these trains that come in and out which connect very poignantly England to the rest of Europe. I mean, talk to me about that work. Well, if people know I'm sort of pretty anti-Brexit. I'm very pro, not just pro-Europe, I'm pro-the world. And Brexit for me was one of the biggest disappointments. I just couldn't believe why this country would choose financial suicide. Even if you're anti-Europe, we didn't have to go down that path. And the sort of like xenophobic, racist, jingoistic sort of attitudes that went with it. And I'm, if, if you ask me where I'm from, I'm probably going to say Margate, you know. I'm certainly not Anglo-Saxon. And during all the Brexit stuff, what I saw and how people's behaviour and the newspaper headlines I thought was terrible. So for me, I want my time with you. When people get off that Eurostar and they see those words, it's friendly, it's warm, it's opening, it's inviting, and it's telling people we're not all racist bigots, we're not all mean pulling up our drawbridges, we actually have a heart and we have a spirit and a lot of us want to share. And also the other thing from a romantic point of view, 
absolutely love to be met at that train station by someone who wants to spend their time with me and then kissing underneath the neon and just like all this love and feeling erupting and this pink sort of effervescent glow and everything is it's amazing there's a little champagne bar at, at St Pancras and they said that since my neon's been out there it's actually it's not neon it's LED it's got 28,000 LED lights oh wow yeah but anyway since it's been there and they've had more and more people proposing at the champagne bar isn't oh that sweet oh my god that's amazing yeah so, you know, maybe someone's had a train journey and it's been romantic. I don't know. I'm passionately romantic and optimistic about those kind of things. And, and I want the world to be a better place. And if I can make St Pancras a better place and feel better, <laughs> then yes, art is working. It's positive. It's good. Totally. But also I love this idea of your work being places of meeting or this idea that an artwork, I mean, a critical way of an artwork's job is almost a, you know, a place that creates discussion, something that you almost need to be in front of it to activate it. You know, I go to an artwork to feel something and that artwork yes, exists by itself, but I'm, you know, I'm sort of like a sort of electrical reaction or something. And I love the work that you put in Jupiter Artland, in their forest this summer. I lay here for you, this beautiful bronze that was absolutely ginormous, and this idea that it was sort of hidden in the depths of the forest, which was also such a romantic idea. Perhaps, you know, people might meet people at the, yeah. at the sculpture as well. Yeah, well, it's also the same with Oslo, with the mother. I'll meet you at the mother, or I'll meet you in the forest. I mean, God, how romantic's that? And now I think because there must be all the leaves and everything all collecting up around her in the forest. It's so passionate and sort of like, wow, your feet crunching on the leaves, laying down on a bed of leaves, all of those things. It's really sensual and amazing. And I love nature. That's why I like being in Margate by the sea. I love the sound of the sea, the look of it, the smell of it, the different horizons, the skylines, everything. I find being in a city difficult for that. The nature in the city is the people and how they interact and what happens with them. And often it's quite aggressive and too fast for me. Whereas by the coast, it's on a completely different level. And I feel tiny as well. I like tiny things. And I like me being tiny with the seascape and with the sky. Turner's paintings are so brilliant with the tiny little people on the beach with the giant sky. With yeah, and I love this idea of sort of being amongst trees that completely tower over us. Also the spiritual impact that these places have. I mean, do you think about that? Yeah, I do. Some places scare me. I'm scared to be in them because I can feel all this stuff or whatever. And then there's other places that just feel so harmonious. I've got a house in France and a studio there. At the beginning, I was really a bit like Picnic at Hanging Rock. I was so scared that it was going to swallow me up literally swallow me the land because it's so undulating and rolling and you could just imagine it just opening and you just disappear i know it feels sort of slightly sacred and well nature is sacred mm. and the show that we have right now at victoria miro you've got the most brilliant fantastic expressive painting which when I saw it just sort of hit me in the gut called rip my heart out you fucking cunt I mean can you talk <laughs> about that and I love its title so much it's mad title. <laughs> I love it everyone loves it and also the thing is it's the truth it's we feel that I was like finally someone's told me something that I can actually say how can I explain this like you fall madly in love madly 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 in love yeah 
and then you get madly, madly, madly brokenhearted, and you still feel madly, madly in love. You feel all these emotions, you feel all these things, and it really hurts, and it's really painful, and you feel like your heart has been ripped out and thrown across the other side of the world, and you're just left there bleeding. Your cunt is left there bleeding, your heart's left there bleeding, your mind, your thoughts, your dreams, everything that you wanted for the future is just like this rag full of blood sobbing. And I feel like that. I feel like that sometimes, and I felt like that recently. That's why where the title comes from. So you can express anger and loss. But if you can get the title to go quite well with the work, you're winning. You think, yes, I've said it. And it's out there, and it's living, and it's breathing, and it doesn't hurt so much anymore. And people think that being cathartic as an artist is slightly weak, but it's not. It's not weak, it's just another way of making work. I don't think being a really highbrow conceptualist is weak. I think it's really fucking cool. I think there's a room for so much kinds of art and so many ways of working. And just because I might appear to be very emotionally base, it's okay. It's all right, there's room for me. But it speaks on a political level as well. Yeah, but people never recognised that before. Someone said to me, oh, this year's Venice Biennale is just really political work. And I went, what? You think my film, how it feels about abortion, if I show this in Texas, isn't going to be political? I said, you're just not looking at my work. You're not looking at my subject matter. You're not looking at the fact that I'm a woman that's been stating and making this work for the last 30 years. And I've taken on that battle, I've taken on that fight, I've taken it on with critics, with museum directors, with all kinds of people, to the point of where it's done me a disservice, really, because I've got a reputation for being difficult. Too right I have, and I will be difficult, because I'll say when I think something's wrong. And that will only enhance and help future generations, and we're so <laughs> grateful for it. Yeah, you just have, you can't open a door, smash it down. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm. Tracy Emin, thank you so much for coming on the Great Woman Artist podcast. If there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Uh, well, it wouldn't be an artist. Okay, what would it be? <laughs> writer. I'd really like to meet Daphne de Maurier. <gasps> and what would you say to her? I'd say, I think your books are incredible. And I'm going to champion them forever and ever and ever. Why do you like her writing so much? Because she's someone else who's been misunderstood. People always treated her like some sort of romantic novelist. And she wasn't. She's such a hardcore feminist. And it's just incredible. Amazing. Tracy Emin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the phenomenal Tracy Emin. As always, I have linked to everything we discussed in the show notes. So please look up those paintings. They're just amazing. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardas Manelaj and research assistant was Viva Ruji. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you again next week with episode two.